Grant that we, encouraged by the good example of your servants, may persevere in running the race that is set before us, until at length, through your mercy, we may with them attain to your eternal joy. Through Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome to Emmaus Way. I think these are all familiar faces in the room. Uh, so uh, uh, as far as like the formal greeting, I'll probably jump over that and just say it's good to have all of you with us tonight. As you can tell, the room's kind of in a different setup this evening. We're going to be doing some work with film uh, in our dialogue series that we've been going through, this dialogue series on mystics, dreamers, and heretics. Um, and the two films that we're going to be looking at tonight, and Tim's going to talk more about these, but um, are Lars and the Real Girl and then a movie called Harvey. Um, Tim will kind of give you some of the background on that, but if you're familiar with those, you might kind of start to gear up in the back of your mind, and uh, we're going to look at how the figures in there kind of stretch our imaginations and stretch our sense of what it means to be Christian community. Um, but we've got a lot of things going on throughout the week. Uh, I know it's summertime, so our, our normal calendars kind of stripped back a little bit, but there still are a number of things going on. One thing to be aware of is that um, I was just taking Kenny uh, back home Kenneth, who helps us do the setup here um, on a weekly basis, and he mentioned that he's uh, trying to make a little bit of money by mowing lawns, so if you live in a place where you have a lawn and you're interested in having somebody possibly come mow it and you're interested in possibly uh, you know, paying him for doing that, um, please uh, be in touch with him. And I think the best way to get in touch, I just tried to call him earlier this, after, this weekend and I couldn't get in touch with him. Um, so if you need to get in touch with him, if that's something you're interested in, why don't you just contact either myself or Tim and we can put you in contact with him or uh, tell you where his house is and how to get in contact with him. That's probably the easiest way to do that. Um, you can either call us, text us, or send an email, uh, whichever works for you. Um, I know that Perspectives has a meeting coming up this week, and so I'll let Josh talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Perspectives is the sort of time each month where we gather around some sort of piece of art or uh, literature or, uh, in this case, uh, film that we want to discuss and uh, interpret together and sort of live into the story of it. So um, some of you may remember Perspectives was actually birthed out of a film series that we did last summer. Um, and so we wanted this summer to do another film series, um, and this is sort of a, has come out of these were films that we considered for the film series that ended up making it into the dialogue. Um, so the film series this summer is going to be sort of around the idea of saints' lives to follow with our theme of mystic streamers and heretics. And so our first saint for this Saturday is going to be Truman from the Truman Show. Um, so anyway, that'll be at our place. Uh, we'll probably start the movie around eight o'clock. Um, so I'll send out a reminder over the weekly and the social, but um, you can be in contact with me if you have any questions. Um, and just a reminder, too, if you're interested in pub group, we are still meeting throughout the summer. We're actually reading um, The New Jim Crow, which is Michelle Alexander's book, kind of on mass incarceration and uh, different issues. And if you can't make it to pub group, if you'd like to read that book, I'm sure it'll be interwoven in our conversations throughout the summer. It's such a powerful read. Um, that if you engage it, um, especially those of you that are interested in taking on the faith team that we're, we're going to be working with throughout the summer, um, that might be something you might want to look at, um, and we can continue to have conversations around that. But you're, to you're completely invited to come join us anytime you want to at Pub Group Bull McCabe's at 815 um, on Thursday evenings. Um, now, I realize that this is Father's Day. Um, in our congregation, we don't typically make a big hoopla about that, not because we don't, uh, you know, kind of... Um, esteem fathers or we don't care about fathers or something like that, but uh, mainly because we recognize that uh, in every congregation, in every community, there are different narratives of people's lives and different relations to fathers that sometimes that day is not always as celebratory sometimes for folks as other folks. And uh, we recognize that we joined as a community or in some sense uh, a family in and of ourselves. So uh, in that recognition, we tend to privilege kind of what's going on in the church calendar and what we have going on in our community over kind of saying, hey, here's a, I don't know, some type of fish tie or something, whatever, whatever people give out on Father's Day and kind of say, hey, isn't this great? Um, but for those of you that uh, uh, have talked to your parents or have not talked to your parents uh, this uh, or your father this, uh, this day, um, and for those of us that are actually, this is my first Father's Day, so it's kind of a unique experience, an odd experience. Um, but uh, we do recognize that, although we won't really do much with it tonight, um, so a piece about that. Um, 
feel like there's one more announcement I'm forgetting. Oh, Moral Monday. Uh, yeah, Josh and Sarah, I think, are going to head down. For those of you that don't know what Moral Monday is, Moral Monday has been this event that's, that's put together by, started by the NAACP uh, in North Carolina, and they're gathering at the Capitol to do what they're calling these Moral Monday demonstrations where they're uh, pushing toward and working for and trying to kind of uh, put on the table some discussions that they think are being left out with regard to people who are minorities in our, uh, in our state people who are kind of vulnerable in our state. So if you are interested in participating in that, there's tons of stuff online if you want to, if you're like, I don't really know what that is and I want to read up more on it. There's tons of stuff online. You can just Google it, Moral Mondays, Raleigh, North Carolina. It'll pop up. You can read up um, and make your own decision about that. But uh, I think Josh and Sarah are going to head down tomorrow afternoon at 4.30-ish. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. So there's the protests are sort of beginning around 5 o'clock, and so we'll probably try and be there around 5.15. And just so you know, if you go, you do not have to get arrested. There's a large group, a very large group of people that do. There's some people that do kind of in demonstration, civil disobedience, do get arrested uh, uh, pretty much every week. But you do not have to get arrested if you don't want to. Yeah, in fact, if you um, would like to get arrested, you have to go to a training yeah. first. So don't just go and try to agitate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you want to get arrested, just get arrested out here on the street corner. Don't, don't go mess up anybody else's stuff. Um, so anyway, welcome to Emmaus Way. Tonight I'm going to uh, ask you now to kind of stand up as is our custom. Greet those around you. Pass the peace of Christ. Um, there are, there's coffee and drinks uh, or water back here if you'd like some. So please make your way over there if you, uh, if you want something to drink. And uh, we'll call you back in just a minute or so. Thanks, everybody. So I absolutely hate doing this, uh, but it's fairly common around June for Emmaus Way. But this is John and Andy's last night with us. So I'm going to ask those guys to come up. We're going to pray for them and kind of hear what they're up to. Um, they've got a big trip coming and... Uh, so why don't you guys, y'all, y'all take the stools, and I'm going to give you the mic here in just a second. But, um, and I was asking Andy today, um, I knew the statistics would have been interesting, but I didn't, couldn't remember them. They've been together for like ten and a half years, and make sure I get this right, you've lived in the same town about four, three or four of those ten years. So, uh, so you guys, most of you guys know Andy's been working in D.C., so she's been, you know, often leaves on Mondays or Sundays or whenever. Uh, and so we're really excited that you guys are going to be in the same town. Uh, we're, we're really disappointed that it's not this town. So why don't you guys tell, before we pray for you, why don't, why don't you guys tell what, what's next for you, including your trip to Oxford and what life is and maybe some things that we can pray for. And then I'll, uh, I'll lead us in prayer. So I'll give that to either one of you. So in one week from today, I will be finishing um, my, a residency in family medicine at UNC. And so I've spent the last 36 months with a very prescribed schedule. And that will come to an end a week from what's today? Sunday, a week from today. <laughs> so very, very long journey. Um, next year, I'm going to go up to D.C. and work at Georgetown University and do a health policy fellowship. So I'll still be practicing clinical medicine at a um, federally qualified health center at an underserved um, clinic in suburban D.C. and then working on primary care uh, health policy. So oh, and one of the things we could um, – we are – we have both moved, I as a military brat and Andy as a preacher's daughter have moved numerous times throughout our lives, but it is something, I don't know how many, any of you feel about this, but it, um, it has a tendency or can be anxiety provoking uh, for our family unit. So the, some prayers for a, um, soft hearts and, and smooth transitions in this upcoming move. So I currently work for International Justice Mission, have been doing that for about a year and a half, and will continue doing that when we move officially up there permanently to D.C. And I also have been uh, engaged in a second master's degree out of Oxford University. And so in two weeks from today or a few more days, we are both going to Oxford for the residential part of that. 
for me for five weeks. Uh, the program will finish in next year. In August, I'll go again. So I would love, I'm currently very anxious about that uh, program. So I would love prayers for just that transition over to Oxford. John's going to be with me for two of those weeks doing nothing for the first time <laughs> in eight years. Um, so I'm really excited about that for him. <laughs> and I will be working really hard. And, and then lastly, prayers for um, finding a faith community. That's something that's really important to us. We felt connected here and have enjoyed the relationships we've made. And that's one of the big important things about community and the relationships. And so um, that is something as we transition to D.C. in late July, early August, that we um, find fertile ground there. That's fantastic. You know, I actually recommended a novel to John just a moment ago. He wrote it down <laughs> probably the first time in the last seven or eight years. They're like, yeah, I might pick up a novel and read that. So uh, got to love that. That's the good part of transitions. But uh, we, we have loved you guys. It's been really fun. We met, I think, three years ago. I uh, had coffee at Caribou in Chapel Hill and talked about this group of people over in Durham that was uh, not super close to you guys living on campus and being close to UNC. It was just a delight, a delight to have you guys as a part of this community. And uh, you've brought many, many wonderful things to this. And we've, we've loved kind of sharing the journey with you. So we will pray for you. And also um, pray with that anticipation that there'll be a community in D.C. that you can be a part of and can help uh, not only shape your life, but you can be a part of shaping their lives. And um, and that's always our dream when people leave. So let me pray for you guys. God, we're, uh, we, we are sad to see John and Andy leave, but uh, are eager and excited about what lies ahead. They have been working, studying, preparing, uh, doing many things here. And anyone in this room who's had a conversation with these guys about uh, the world that you've created and ways that uh, we can live and act redemptively know how deeply passionate they are about uh, seeing the world the way you see it, uh, living, working, serving, uh, building the kingdom in this world, in this place, and we're excited about the work that they will do uh, in, in so many ways, in policy, in medicine, and many other areas. So uh, these are people that uh, have bought into what you're trying to accomplish in this world, and we pray that uh, you might help them to make the transition not only to uh, uh, D.C., but also uh, part of the summer in Oxford, uh, friends, uh, faith community, uh, uh, smoothness and moving stuff, uh, getting life set up, all the things that uh, can be so essential in nesting ourselves in a new community. And so they go with our prayers. They go with uh, our joy for their lives and love with them. And may they sense that uh, from us and know as well that it comes deeply from you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. So it is movie night at Emmaus Way, which is kind of fun to do. We haven't this yeah, you know, this room is not a great media room, so we have not done a whole lot of uh, stuff like that. But uh, thank you to Dan and whoever else uh, worked in Josh and Sarah and others that were were, were and Amanda Haas. And Ben Haas, of course, uh, like uh, uh, of getting all this set up. Uh, actually, Ben did the cuts and the, the kind of the editing for us, which is no small job. But have you guys, how many of you guys have seen these films that we're going to do tonight? Uh, Lars and the Real Girl and then uh, Harvey. So some. Not as many on Harvey. So just as a part of, just as a good norm, um, uh, Ben bought these for the church. So if you want to take one of the, if, if first one up, if you want to take one of these home, do, uh, I've watched both these films. They were just absolutely fantastic. I, the Real Girl is available streaming on Netflix as well. So for anybody who has Netflix, you can watch it. Fantastic. So just a repetition, uh, you know, this summer what we've done is this series of kind of mystics, dreamers, and heretics is we've been interested in looking at communities and persons who ask us to cross boundaries, to move out of safe spaces and explore realms of faith. Uh, in areas where we're just not used to doing that. And, um, and these are the people often, and we've selected people that remind us that faith is an adventure, 
Sometimes it's unsettling, it's frightening, it is worth that risk that sometimes we take in putting faith in things. And so uh, it's been a fun series to do that. Uh, um, Tonight I'm going to pretty boldly say that this is going to be your first sermon dialogue uh, where the primary prophets are a six foot, three and a half inch rabbit that is only seen by some, a puka, a rare Celtic spirit, I think as he's described, and a blow-up sex doll. Uh, I'm just going to suggest that that combination hasn't been done very, very often. Uh, But uh, actually, the real prophets... The real voices in this, and, and, and I think we'll have enough of the films for you to get this, the, the real prophets in this are not the rabbit Harvey or uh, Bianca the doll, but Elwood P. Dowd, played by Jimmy Stewart in Harvey, uh, an alcoholic and a man who lives on an entirely different rhythm than the rest of the world. Uh, and, and he is uh, Harvey's compadre and is uh, a, a really interesting character. And Lars, who is a young man, maybe late 20s, early 30s, uh, struggling with, as you'll pick up a little bit in this, a really profound grief and a strong sense of fear um, are the kind of the key uh, instigators in his life. Uh, But these are two people who are committed to these imaginary, in quotation, persons, uh, but have a strong voice, a strong vision for how life could be lived, how uh, transformative life can be when lived in a different manner. And so we're going to have a pretty informal conversation about this afterwards. Uh, And so I've got questions, but feel free, we'll just run away from those questions if we want to and, and, uh, and kind to piece this apart. Um, the scenes that we're going to see, uh, let me just, we're going to piece through two Harvey scenes first and then two Lars scenes. So, so you can kind of get a sense and settle in. I think this is probably about 25 minutes uh, or, or so of viewing, 25, 30 minutes. So you're, the idea is for you to have enough of this to be able to talk about this. And particularly, I think, from the show of hands, most of you haven't seen Harvey. Um, so let me kind of tell you what you're going to see with Harvey. You're going to see a very first scene of his sister, apparently um, Jimmy Stewart, uh, uh, um, Lars, I forget, I mean Elwood, Elwood and his sister have uh, have inherited a kind of a, an estately home. They live a society life. And his sister and, his, and her daughter, who is unmarried, and you pick this up really quickly, she is eager to find someone and kind of find someone in society uh, to kind of get herself started socially. And she has this embarrassing issue of her uncle, who not only drinks all the time, uh, but speaks to this supposedly imaginary rabbit all the time. This rabbit is perpetually with him. And so it's a disturbing kind of thing. And so the very first scene that we're going to see on this is uh, they're planning a party uh, and they've gone to great lengths to plan this kind of society event when he's normally out at the bar and at the library. Uh, But he's going to make a a random appearance back at home just in time for all these society figures to kind of be there. So we're going to see a, a cut of that. And then we're going to also watch another small scene that I can honestly say to you, if I had written this second scene, I would feel pretty good about my life. This is a, as reputedly one of the best kind of written scenes in all of American cinema. And at this scene, he is at a, a bar and the, the, the kind of the dynamic of this is that his sister, based on the fiasco of the party, has tried to have him committed, which creates this whole comedic hijinks of where she's committed and he's committed. And you've got psychiatrists running around all over town trying to find these people that should be in the sanatorium. And uh, at and, and this point, there are two persons, uh, a, a psychiatrist and the secretary uh, of of this uh, of this sanatorium that where they've tried to have him committed. 
committed, who have gone out looking for him, and they've had this engaging conversation. In this second scene, they're going to be out in an alley behind a bar, and they're going to have some honest conversation because they have realized by this point that Elwood is a little bit different than what they would have said in that language of 1950, the typical crazy that they see who comes into their place. So let's watch those two scenes, and I'll give a quick intro to uh, Lars, though most of the people have seen that. One of the interesting things about that scene as well is the, um, the psychiatrist and the uh, receptionist nurse secretary there had, had, had incredibly sharp angled words with each other in multiple scenes. They clearly don't like each other. And in, even in this scene and kind of chasing them around, they've had a dance. And, and this is one of the things that happens around Harvey and, and uh, Elwood. As people who are not reconciled with each other all of a sudden become friends or potential lovers or uh, any of the, I mean, there's, it's interesting the relationships that come together around this. So it's kind of fun to see. And of course, I love that language. I think we've all probably been in a situation where we needed to be conveyed or, <laughs> or otherwise. Spiffed is a new word for me, but I uh, thought that was great. So anyway, that's a little bit of a, 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 a taste of, of Harvey, and that's probably uh, about... Um, there's another 30 to 45 minutes into the movie, and I'll try to do kind of a no-spoilers uh, approach tonight to this. I, I, think we, I think the way we've set it up, it works that way. So now we're going to move on to Lars. And again, Lars and, and Elwood are two people, and it's kind of what, how they fit into our series, that are deeply on the margins. They are people that could be, they see rabbits, they see a, a, a doll and think it's a fiancé. Um, they, they're clearly people on the margins. Um, now, the scene that we're going to look at with Lars is that, and, and the way it's been set up is Lars and his brother have, um, they are orphans, and they have uh, a, uh, inherited a very nice home. It looks like somewhere in northern Minnesota or North Dakota. It's way up north. And uh, they, they've inherited a home together. His brother's married, but uh, Lars has insisted of not moving into the home, um, but lives in the garage. There's a garage apartment, so he's in a, in a separate kind of building. And um, his brother's wife has been very determined to try to get him back into their, the life of their family. And in, in the early scenes of the film, uh, Lars is incredibly resistant. He doesn't want to come to dinner. He doesn't want to come in the house. He wants to be alone. He, he, he goes to work. He comes home. Uh, but you can see that there's some profound angst going on. And as the story uh, un- unveils, uh, I, you know, this kind of slipped my brain. Josh, you might help me with this. I think his mother died in childbirth. Is that right? And so his um, his sister in law is now pregnant, and I think that was probably a major incident for him for for him to see this baby coming and the the memory of kind of losing uh, his mom first in childbirth as well as uh, just some really profound grief. And we learned that his father was a, a good but a deeply sad person, and his older brother had kind of gone off and has only recently come back to the community. So he lived with his father, who's now passed already, a sad person. So that's kind of a setup on Lars, and um, there's a little bit of a um, a little bit of a love interest that pops in. It's a woman that he works with. We'll meet her in this, uh, but his response to kind of her very simple overtures of "Do you want to go to a party?" that sort of thing is he has he heard somebody joking about a a lifelike, and they've checked this out to make sure that it's very lifelike, uh, sex doll. Somebody's talking about that. And he orders it not really for those purposes, but Bianca comes from Russia, and she is his uh, fiancée. And so uh, the scene we're going to start with here is they are driving um, to a... um, to a you know country small town doctor psychologist a woman who plays this character wonderfully and so they're they're concerned about the health of Bianca but this is an excuse to um, to really have him speak to her uh, so you'll see what's interesting in this scene too is notice how the town reacts to Bianca's presence which is a unique thing church hospital all sorts of things and then the second scene is later in the film and um this love interest kind of has kicked up a little bit and um and um Lars is moving toward a breakup with Bianca so I think that's enough setup
So um, let us start talking about that, and if we can pull it up. It, it was a really interesting. There was a scene of them in church that I thought was great. Uh, you know, beyond, the one in the basement, the church basement, where they're talking, or you're talking about the one where they're actually in In church, holding the hymnal and that sort of thing. So anyway, um, and um, I feel like that second scene also, also had a piece where um, – um, he and Bianca are in the bedroom, and the, and the brother, the brother who was um, obviously very resistant, becomes Bianca's tuck-in person, and he tucks her in every night, and makes sure she's comfortable, and so you see kind of a profound change. But um, so, let me, uh, you guys feel free to comment as you will on this. But obviously, one of the things that's interesting about this is that Elwood and Lars are very, very much on the uh, on the margins of life, uh, but just kind of. You know, as people were trying to listen to that, at least in the film first, what do you think they're trying to communicate with uh, bringing Bianca into the town as well as with uh, kind of the, the rabbit with Harvey? What are they communicating? What's their message? That they want to feel normal? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think this is normal for them. Yeah, sure. I think they're also, with this delusion, they're bringing in this this character that releases tension and makes people around them just calmer, I guess, and maybe a little bit uncomfortable because they don't know exactly what's going on, but some of that they laugh at it and start to brush off other things. Yeah, sure. There's there's something transformative that happens, right? I think that's well said, Bethany. In the presence of Bianca and around Harvey. Now, interestingly, if you watch Harvey, there's a few people who see Harvey. Uh, the film leaves an in, the implication that Harvey is very real, but just not seen by by everyone. But in the presence of Harvey, even the people who don't see Harvey, uh, there's scenes in the bar where the, the bartender very willingly pours two drinks, one for Jimmy Stewart and one for Harvey. I mean, there's, there's something transformative that happens around there. Uh, and react a little bit about community around these kind of marginalized Persons. What, what did you see in terms of the responses of, of the community? It seems like part of it, um, I mean, I, I'd, I'd seen Lars before um, with regard to the communities, is that, I mean, this is in Minnesota. It's kind of this, you know, quaint small town where everybody knows everybody. And I think with regard to um, a city or a town, what, uh, at least the way it's portrayed in the movie, that there are expectations about the way people interact, about what people will do. And I think in some extent the big question of the movie, not the big question, but one of the big questions of the movie is will the town be able to kind of uh, adapt to things that they didn't quite expect? And will they, will they be able to make space in their community for something that kind of uh, stretches them beyond the kind of normal ways that they're they're used to interacting with one another and so you kind of see it play out in the community itself as to how they try to adapt to this kind of new presence that's all of a sudden been uh, thrown upon them Um, and in a weird way I think what's interesting with Lars especially is that he kind of um, was a part of the community but kind of a hidden part of the community and now he becomes a very visible part of the community and so there's this weird kind of contrast between him being the hidden uh, part of a community, and now with this new presence becoming a very visible part of the community, so it's, it's mm-hmm. there's there's some of that going on as well. It's interesting. There are two stereotypes, particularly in Lars, that the filmmaker doesn't go at, and in fact actually contradicts. One is the small town, completely unwilling to accept change. One of the scenes that we lost was uh, remember that was a, a, a I've, I've got the church one. You want to pull that one up? And there was a, there was a gathering just before church where that I don't know if we're going to, okay. Let's look at this real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump back on Dan's comment. So it's interesting, Dan, your comment on that. Um, Still on. The mic's on. Oh yeah. That your your comment on that that typically in a lot of filmmaking, a lot of the stereotype you'd have the community, small town, being utterly unadaptable and the church setting being the people who would be the least 
welcoming. And it was interesting this film kind of reverses that norm. Uh, so any other comments on the community around uh, Bianca or Harvey? I would say, like, one of the most interesting moments to me is when the, the sister, so Lars's sister-in-law, um, and when they're sitting in the doctor's office and she says, I don't want to send Lars away because my uncle went away and we never saw him again. And, like, it, the interesting thing that the community tries to do is figure out a way to not send him away. They try to figure out a way, okay, if we're not going to not see him anymore, that means we're going to have to see him. Mm-hmm. And so how do we actually do this as a community in a way that invites him and invites her into the reality that our community is lived out of? Mm-hmm. And without creating a spoiler for that, I mean, as the, as the film produces, I mean, they deeply, sensitively embrace Lars's delusion in every way possible. It's, it's really interesting how they, they rally around that. That's a great point. Yeah. Other comments on that? He said the reality of the community is built out of it. It is kind of interesting here because in a community, some people have realities that aren't part of our shared reality. And sometimes we think that reality is toxic or bad or, you know, whatever. And we as Christians, we have a reality that just makes no sense to the people around us. Um, Definitely have a big white rabbit (laughs) (laughs) that we talk about a lot. (laughs) But but then we're we're related to people who have their own white rabbits that we don't think are real. One of the interesting things in, like, in an Alateen setting, um, when they actually, they'll say your, um, your higher power. So they basically allow you to name your higher power, and they don't make it so specific. Um, like, my friend Claire, she grew up in a Catholic setting, and so she doesn't necessarily still abide by Catholic protocol by everything, but she still does believe in that God. She calls him Chris sometimes um, because it's close to Christ, so she's still honoring that, but she's still venturing away from it. Yeah, Bethany, you're raising a great point there that isn't it interesting that we all have narratives? And when you form a community, there are different stories and different perspectives out there. I mean, it was really funny to see, you know, so we've got a a blow-up doll, but we've got a cubicle mate that has action figures all over the, you know, and a a stuffed animal. And I mean, everyone brings a little bit of crazy to the town as well as everybody brings a little bit of deep need for imagination. And And in any community, we're asking people to embrace narratives that might not exactly be the narrative that you have, have brought along. Uh, I think that's really interesting. Uh, I thought about this too. If you watch this, let me give you this prompt. Uh, when we were talking about Dorothy Day a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that was a significant part of her kind of theology uh, in terms of a Catholic worker community, is the constant need for conversion. I know a lot of us grew up in environments where conversion is something that happens one time and you're all set from that point on. But there's really a lot of rich theologies that say we're constantly converting. We're constantly searching for. We say it every week in a mass way that we're trying to understand God's redemptive work and we're struggling to do that. And we also say this, that every new person that comes to this community brings a voice and a story and a narrative that changes our narrative to some degree by that. And, if, and particularly in Lars, but true in Harvey as well, if you watch that film, notice the number of conversions that happen. Uh, the, the, uh, the older brother converts, Lars converts to different realities. The town converts. They're constantly working to find space for a new presence and a new voice in the, uh, in the community. Uh, now, let me let you redirect this a little bit. Let's put this as text for us. And there's plenty of biblical texts that kind of relate to this kind of narrative that we've seen here. But as a community of people like us, what might be some of the challenges that come from, uh, from Elwood and from Lars who have brought somebody on the margins or really unexpected in the community? What might we hear, understand, or be challenged by from from those stories? 
Yeah, I think in the, I mean, even in the title of Lars, right, we have this challenge of sort of what is real and what does the word real mean? I think so often the word real is used as uh, a dismissive uh, of certain <coughs> stories. So that we say, like, you know, you, well, you, you had a struggle, but you didn't have a real struggle. Right. Or you may have dealt with pain, but you haven't dealt with real pain. And so oftentimes it's a way of delimiting what counts, what is valuable within a certain story, and what isn't valuable. Um, and I think you know, the question that you can ask, based on the title, especially in Lars, is which girl is the real girl? <laughs> right? We have this cubicle mate, and we have this blow-up doll. But in some real sense, the cubicle mate doesn't get elected to the school board, but Bullock Doll actually does. That's not a big plot point. So in some way, by, by treating, you know, they, they, they have a hard time treating this sort of Bianca as real, but actually she's the only thing that creates all of these real relationships between the characters. So I think it, it challenges us to accept people in such a way that we don't use real as a dismissive. There's a powerful scene in Harvey where they are about to give him a serum that will make him see the real world the way it is. And there's a cabbie present who says, you know, I take people often to this sanatorium all the time. They're pleasant. They're, they're looking at the beautiful scenery around them and the beautiful weather. Even when there's not beautiful weather, they're seeing things that are incredible. They get the injection and they go home and they're just crabby like people are, you know. And so, to some degree, there, it raises that challenge of what what is the real, and what are we being asked to see, and who are the voices, who are the presences in our community that ask us to see something that we want to miss, and it's often something that might be out of the norm. Um, like, for example, um, here, here's some questions we might ask ourselves on this: Is who are our, and you can define our any way you want to, your your family, this community, a broader community of people? Who are our marginal voices? Who are the people who see it a different way? And are we listening to those voices? Are we struggling to hear those voices? I think we all at times like to hear from people who see it our way because there's not a whole lot of work. And maybe one of the best ways in kind of a general sense of discerning what a marginal voice is, who is the person who speaks into your life and you kind of take a breath and go... This is going to be complicated. So are we listening to those voices? Um, and, and what happens as we see in the town, as we see on the bar stools around Harvey? What happens when we listen to those voices? I can say it's part, but not many of you would remember this in terms of the life of Emmaus Way. You start a church. The first year of starting a church, there's going to be a lot of peripheral voices that come into that kind of setting. I think our first year, there was many, um, there was many a night that I sat on the dialogue stool and kind of went, oh my goodness, there's probably four or five people here who might say something that I have absolutely no way possible of responding to. I mean, literally, we had one person who was homeless, who uh, was, uh, would, um, would he brought his donation box he had a, he sat on franklin street our family i think mimi and the kids met him and he had a donations box and during the eucharist he would get out his donations box and walk around and try to get money from people at the table you know so he would just kind of so you'd go get some bread and wine and you'd go by Lattimore who had his box out and his partner at the time was a a, a crack addict and a prostitute and we took them home many nights. There's many a night when I opened the door that I kind of hoped that the door didn't, uh, that it opened into me rather than Keenan and Kendall, who were fifth graders and third graders at the time. But this was really kind of a normal, normal for us our first year, year and a half. And that part of our life together was finding room for those voices. I mean, there were biblical texts that you would read that Jesus would talk about uh, uh, persons, and you'd kind of go, wow, reading this in front of Lattimore is an entirely different experience. Experience for us than that. Uh, so, yeah, your man. All of these things are really important. And thinking about the people who are on the margins of society, like this story, the society has invested often so much creativity to not see them. Uh, you all were, were saying at 
some point about how the the laws in, or maybe I heard this on the news, um, the laws in Durham permitted getting a certain permit and having mixed income levels in the community, but nobody had done it. Because that's one we, one way we don't see the people we don't want to see. Um, this was, uh, just to clarify, these were like people who are developers have the freedom to overdevelop if they'll develop low-income homes around the units that they're producing. And they, they just never do it. And, and I think it's because we, we have these unspoken contracts in our society that, that we don't want to have to see people on the margins. And so we develop all kinds of ways not to do that. But I also want to mention something different than people on the margins of the society, which is any time any community develops any kind of cohesiveness, then it's going to have its own margins. And uh, even a, you know, such a wonderful community as Mays Way is going to have its, its own margins. And um, some of those will be similar to societies, and some we will create our own thing. About a month ago, Two friends of mine I had not seen in 40 years came to town because one of their sons was getting a master's from Chapel when they came to his graduation. I got a chance to visit with them. Brian and Elaine, I haven't kept up with them a lot, but, you know, I remember them always. I knew them when we were all at Harvard Divinity School. Well, they were my Protestant Pentecostal friends as opposed to the guy I was dating who was my end to the Catholic Pentecostal community. Um, and I just found all kinds of things that did not fit my stereotype with either of these groups of people. Um, but Brian and Lang were so well balanced and they did not have a theology of tongues making somebody, one Christian, better than another Christian. But they just had a real sense of wisdom about how they dealt with things. And I went to a Bible study in their house. Um, sure, I didn't go every week, but went a good bit. Um, and it was great to see them again. You know, 40 years, that's a long time. But it reminded me that, um, that in a community like this, where I think a number of people have had some destructive experiences with people, um, this is an evangelical community, folks, I hate to tell you, but but it is, even if some of you are trying to escape from evangelicalism. But some people here have had such negative and destructive experiences with people on the far right religiously. But it's important to remember that there are very um, loving, Christian, helpful, 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 socially concerned Christians who are Pentecostals and who have various other characteristics that we might associate just with the people who've been destructive. But that's not really fair to do either because there's some other folks out there in those categories too. And so we may marginalize some of those those ideas. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's well said that any time a group gathers together, there's always going to be a margin forming and reforming. And for a place like us, who kind of tries to live in dialogue, changes profoundly, have people leave, uh, and and you know we have lots of people leaving and coming in at all times. Uh, those those margins are shifting and they're changing. And uh, I mean, I, I think one of the things that we experienced early on at the Mayus Way is we were we had two different generations of the Mayus Way in three years of existing. And so I think that's very 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 well said, Sarah. Let me invite you to come on forward and lead us in the confession and the absolution and uh, as well as uh, to the table. And we have a liturgical uh, invitation to the table, so you'll need your handouts tonight or your, your uh, iPad or smartphone if you're doing that version. But as we kind of make this movement and as Sarah kind of reads the liturgy to us tonight, uh, I, I encourage you to watch these films. I, I was really touched by both of them, and, and I, I, there's always this sense that um, part of, of 
living the gospel is embracing a counter narrative. It's 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 embracing a story that says that the world is going in a different direction. There's been a million times that I've in some ways uh, associated myself with that story, only to realize, you know what, I, I am basically describing a, a large six and a half foot white rabbit to someone to some degree. And so this, in, in many ways, we are that story that drives our life is a different way of looking at the world. And as a community, our posture should be a posture of openness. This is why we chose the name Emmaus Way as a, a posture of radical receptivity, of, of wanting to hear new voices, wanting to be challenged, wanting to find that old old fiends in somebody's life might be the hero in another person's narrative. And so uh, I, I, these, are, these were stories that spoke very strongly to me. I know as I watched them both and was preparing this, my, my personal reaction was, who am I intentionally not listening to? And, and if were I to embrace their presence, how would that change the, the trajectory of my own life? So as we kind of step into confession and absolution, that might be a good, uh, a good segue. Sarah. As we go through confession and absolution together, please read the bold and italic parts along with me. Hear the commandments of God to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not invoke with malice the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not be a false witness. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. Amen. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. His mercy endures forever. The most important commandment, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Mark twelve twenty nine to 31. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. And during our time of silence, feel free to take a posture, any posture of confession that is appropriate for you this week. Together we pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Please join me in standing. Receive this absolution. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all of your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And now we join in the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with the angels and archangels, 
and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you, in your mercy, sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of us all. He stretched out his arm upon the cross and offered himself, in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, together we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption. O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, recalling his death, resurrection and ascension we offer you these gifts sanctify them by your holy spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your son the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity constancy and peace and at the last day bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table. Please, as you serve one another, offer them bread, saying, This is the body of Christ, and offer them juice or wine, saying, This is the blood of Christ. Wine is in the uh, shorter containers and juice is in the taller containers. Welcome to the table.